Hello and welcome everyone. If uh, one or two of you could type in yes into the chat just to make sure you can hear me, that would be great. Uh, my name is Andrew Krause. I'm one of the co-founders here at EventRight. We've been coaching and mentoring inventors to license their products for royalties for the past two decades for over 20 years. And so if you guys need some answers about licensing, um, you're in the right place. For those of you that don't know what licensing is, it just means you're going to rent or lease your product to a big company, not sell, because if they don't perform, you get it back. And you're not, you're not doing that with a retailer. You're not renting or leasing your product idea to a retailer for the most part. You're doing that with a manufacturer brand that has products in retailers or on Amazon or online or elsewhere. That's a common misconfusion. Misconfusion? <laughs> That's a common confusion that people think like, oh, well, well, I call it Walmart, right? No, no. If you're selling a product yourself, you could do that. But if you're licensing it, you want to license to the companies that are in the retailers where you want to be. But anyway, what licensing is, is receiving a royalty for every unit you sell. And you're not selling your idea to them. You're renting or leasing it because if they don't perform, you can get it back because you don't want to give it to a company and have them just sit on it. Now, people ask that question all the time. Boy, I'm going off a lot of tangents already, aren't I? Um, but they say, oh, I think a company is going to try to license it and sit on it. I haven't found that to be true. But if you don't put the right things in a licensing agreement, they could do that. And so that's why you want some sort of escape clause. But anyway, getting back to the core of what licensing is, then I'm going to jump into your guys' questions is you're receiving a royalty for every unit they sell. It's not a retailer you're licensing to, but a manufacturer that has distribution in that, those retailers that, where you want to be. Um, and then you don't need to hire employees because you know it's, you license your product to a big company. You kind of Your product is with that big company now. So you don't need to hire people. You don't need to raise money. And you don't need to create your distribution from scratch. Retailers don't want to deal with small one product companies pretty much ever. I've seen people fight tooth and nail to get into retailers and be able to do it and good on them, but it's very difficult. If you license to a big company that might have eight products in this store and 15 in that store, they're going to listen. The buyer at that store is going to listen to the company you license to, but you with your one product, you know, they're not really going to listen to you and they're worried you're not, you're going to run out of money. You're not going to have good quality. Um, you're not going to deliver on time, all the things that new companies run into. And so when you license to that big company, you are that big company. So that's the ben one of many benefits of licensing. So um, let's jump in. If you guys can type your q and I don't have, um, I have these cool new shelves. I got the wallpaper up now, so I don't have, I have a different color background. I'm going to put these shelves up right here. I'm going to put my students, our students' products um, up on there. So I, I was hoping it was going to be done by today, but it's not. But next Monday, you guys will see a bunch of our students' products up there. And when I do these Q&As, I can pull stuff off the shelf, and that'll be really cool. And you won't have this cheesy, dated speakerphone system thing there. <laughs> so it'll be looking good. I'm excited about that. Um, all right, let's go. Let's jump right in. Um, and if you have a handle, it'd be nice if you type your first name. It's not necessary. I'll read their your silly handle if you if you have one and you don't type your first name in no big deal some of them could be you know you probably didn't even think about it when you created your youtube account it's just something random and you're like why is he calling me that it's because he didn't type your first name um okay so what we're focusing on today and every day is licensing we don't um 
guide, coach, and mentor people to do venturing deals, which is a fancy way of saying make it and sell it yourself. We guide people to do licensing deals, don't need to raise money, don't need employees, don't need to um, create your distribution from cat crap from scratch, forgot how to talk, and start your own company. All right. Um, I was doing something just before I jumped on here, so I need to get in the train of the uh, Q&A here. Uh, Radu said, hey, Andrew, love the live shows, exclamation mark. Thank you for the exclamation mark, Radu. Appreciate that. Besides manually searching. Oh, by the way, guys, sometimes we'll, I mean, you guys are really good. I don't even really hear people complaining, but if you're asking questions towards the end, like you're listening to these and you're like, oh, I got a question, you know, I won't always be able to get to them all, you know? So if you're like, oh, this is really important. Like type it in now. Don't wait to listen to me for a while. Type it in now and there's a higher likelihood I'll be able to get to it. But it's a full freaking hour. It's a lot of Q&A. So, um, Andrew, love the live shows. Besides manually searching Google patents and images, are there any other ways to ensure ideas are not infringing on anyone else's IP? And that's short for intellectual property. Intellectual property, guys, if you don't know, is just patents, copyrights, trademarks, trade secrets. But it's just a fancy way. Most people, when they're referring to IP or intellectual property, they're basically saying patents. But you sound cool when you say it. You sound like you know what you're talking about. So I encourage you guys to use the word IP in the place of patents sometimes, which is short for intellectual property, because it makes you sound like you know what you're talking about. Um, okay, so one thing, what one, one thing Radu is saying here is he's, how can I search to make sure I'm not infringing? So here's the answer you probably would have thought I would have given, but it's a major, major misconception. There's this perception that every product a company sells is patented, and it's not true even remotely. Some, I interviewed, um, we have this program called Bridging the Gap, where we bring company CEOs on and marketing managers to talk directly with our students, just for our students. And they say, this is what I'm looking for. It's like an inside track on what they're looking for. And we give them their submission email and everything. And there was this one company we had recently, and they had um, over 8,000 SKUs. That's stock keeping units, over 8,000 um, different products. Do you think they're filing a patent on eight to 9,000 products? I think you said it was somewhere between eight and nine now, actually. No, it'd be ridiculous. You know, and so this perception that you're going to be infringing on other people's ideas and that is going to happen frequently is an incorrect perception. Um, now, you could, so I'm not saying don't look, but what I do is been obviously watching and following us because I'm saying, look, do a market search, use Google Images, look at all the stuff that's out there that's in the space of your invention so you know what's in the marketplace, right? Now, some of that stuff may not be patented, in which case you're not infringing. So don't think, oh, if somebody has a product, they must have protection on that entire product, and therefore I couldn't do anything like it. That's not at all even remotely the case. Um, inventors come up with a lot of these um, misperceptions that end up holding them back. So realize uh, most products are not patented. And even if they are patented, don't go, oh, it says patented or patent pending, so I can't do that whole thing. No, it's like, what did they get the claim on? Did they get the claim on just the hinge and then not the whole thing? So when people patent stuff, they're not, this is not legal speak, but they're patenting pieces of it. That's the way I like to explain it. They're not patenting just because it says patent pending or patented doesn't mean they patented the whole product. It means pieces of it they've been able to protect. So if you see products and it says patented, patent pending, you know, look it up and see if their claims are a problem. And most of the time it's not. 
Okay, so Radu, my answer is yes. Go on Google Images and go on the Patent Office website or Google Patents if you want and look at what else is out there to make sure you're not infringing on anybody. But I can tell you with students, you know, we've had students in over 65 countries. Um, we, we have a lot of students at any one point in time. We have between typically between four and 600 students at any point in time. I don't know if you know that. We're, we've been doing this for a long time. We're kind of the guys in the space. I'm really proud of that. Um, but it's rare that that's, that your product is going to be infringed on something else, someone else's product. Have I ever had a student come to me and say, hey, this company said I'm infringing on their product and they're going to sue my butt? No, never in 20 years. <laughs> it happened. I, it might have happened to one or two of our inventors, but I've never heard about it. And I kind of know what's going on with our students. So um, now that doesn't mean you shouldn't be careful. And But if your major focus is worrying about infringing as opposed to doing good marketing, your focus is all wrong. Um, now, I did have this one company when a uh, student, and this is, a, I think I told this story before, and um, I was helping him out, and I didn't know he was working on a sports related product. I didn't know he had a website where he put NFL logos all over it. I'm like, I had no idea. I didn't even know he had a website. And he emailed me one day, oh, the NFL called me, they're threatening to sue me, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, what? And I'm like, and because I, I have a website with NFL logos. I'm like, what are you thinking? That's their brand. You can't publicly put NFL logos on a public website if you haven't got their authorization. You can't do that. I said, just take it down. Take it down like this millisecond. He did. They never got back to him. That was fine. So that wasn't an infringing on somebody's patent. It was infringing on somebody's trademark. So I do remember that instance because it was it. I was I was like, what are you thinking? You know, now. Some people go, oh, well, I can't do that then. Well, when you privately show something, and this is not legal advice, so I'll give you my disclaimer. Anything I share with you today or tonight or whatever time it is, wherever you are, um, should not be considered legal advice. Um, please seek the service of an attorney, okay? So now there's, some, there's something called fair use. And when you're privately showing a sell sheet to a marketing manager at a company via email to that one person, um, you can do a sell sheet that has logos on it to show them what is possible. And then you need to have a disclaimer at the bottom that says all logos and trademarks are the rights of their respective owners and for illustrative purposes only. But that's very different than putting an NFL logo up on a public website totally different things. So um, you can show them what's possible. You can use somebody else's product. You can you can do whatever you want there because it's private. It's not messing with their brand um, or any misperception that you own that. You're just privately showing it to a marketing manager on what could be done. Look, we could do some with these brand logos with NASCAR or NFL or whatever, or we could do a generic version like this. Um, so Radu, it's not something I would spend a lot of time worrying about. Um, but I would look at it and really the, the best thing, the, the people that are going to be upset about you infringing are usually the ones that are already making money. Okay. So if, if you find, and studying the marketplace and looking on Google images, you're going to find people making products in that space, which is part of your research you should be doing anyway. So if you find things like, Ooh, that's exactly what I want to do. And most of the time, even when you do find that, I would say 95% of the time when I have a student, they find something they're concerned about, we can get right around it.
Now, then you're probably going, oh, well, then people can get around me easy. No, because you think about all the variations, workarounds, improvements. Most people don't. When they file patents, they just they just go, oh, here, here it is. They give it to their patent attorney. They didn't say, but it could be like this or this or this or this, and let's protect those as well. But our students, we tell them to do that. They use their smart IP software and they implement all those improvements, workarounds into their provisional patent application. So, but a lot of inventors think like, oh, well, that's just my attorney's job. They'll do it. Well, BS, it's not their job. It's your job. You're the inventor to give them variations, workarounds, improvements. So, Redu, it's not something I worry about tremendously. Is this something you should look at? For the most part, I think just studying the marketplace is the biggest thing you can do. And then you can use Google Images too. So, are you saying any other ways? No, that's that's all you can do. Look at the marketplace, look at patents. Those are the two places where you might have competing products that have patents or intellectual property. But the biggest thing I'll go back to, what I said at the beginning, most products are not patented. So if you see, and, and one way of, of looking at this, like if you see eight barbecue spatulas from eight different companies and they all have that same feature, more than likely that feature isn't patented. Somebody did it once, it was out there for more than a year, now it's public domain, everybody's doing it. Right. But if you see one company's got this unique feature, you're like, why are the only ones having it? Maybe it is because they have some sort of protection. So um, let's see. The lighting's really weird in here, but that's okay. Um, okay, I like this question from James. Sorry to ramble so long on that first one, but uh let's not do too much patent stuff today, guys. Uh James says, is it necessary to use LinkedIn to connect to companies or would cold calling? suffice by itself. Um, James, you know, it wasn't until that long ago that we were heavily advising people to use LinkedIn, but we still advise them to use the phone. You know, I'll, I'll illustrate the differences between the two. So if you have a company name, you just pick up the phone this second and you can call them and you can ask who would be the right marketing manager to talk to, or can I talk to this or that marketing manager or whoever, you know, and you can just pick up the phone and might say, oh, that's Bob but he prefers emails. Here's his email address or oh, I'll put you through his voicemail or whatever. And just boom happens right there. Right? So if you're not shy about calling to me, Stephen and I were having this discussion the other day because we talk a lot about LinkedIn and Stephen's like, if I had a company, I just pick up the freaking phone and just do that. Cause if I can get that done in three minutes, you know, with that one particular company, why wouldn't I do that? Okay. So now a lot of people are very timid about picking up the phone and calling these companies. So LinkedIn is nice. We give our students some special templates they can use to reach out and to companies in just the right way. And uh, LinkedIn works great. But you know, guess what? Not everybody's on LinkedIn. You know, maybe they're, the marketing manager is only going on there once a year, only maybe only when they feel like their job is threatened because that's a place to look for jobs and stuff. Maybe they're on there every day or every week or just once a month. So if you have a company you're reaching out to on LinkedIn and just completely non-responsive, and that doesn't mean sending it once, as sent it multiple times, um, then you might be like, oh, they're not active, you know? And so I'm going to pick up the phone. So I think these days, um, despite what I said, Stephen and I really feeling like just pick up the friggin' phone if you can, and you're not shy about it. But if it gets people going to get in front of companies and they reply and for people that are shy about calling on the phone, LinkedIn could be great to do that. And it's a great tool to begin with too. Some industries, you're not going to see, they're not going to be much traction on LinkedIn, but most people are on LinkedIn these days. So um, absolutely. If you're like, 
And the downside of LinkedIn is you need to kind of like build your profile a little bit. You need to ask people into your network. It takes some time to build it. So James, if you just want to pick up that stupid phone and call them, I'm all for that. That's that's a very pro thing to do. But once you build up your LinkedIn profile, I, th I think I have about 10,500 contacts, something like that. You don't need to do that, but you kind of need to build it up a bit. And you don't build it up just with these new companies. You should really try to get you know, 50 or 80 people in your network. And so you can add myself, you can add Steven. You want to get some people in your network first that aren't the companies you're reaching out to. So they don't go look at it and go, they have zero contacts. Like, are they a spammer? You know, so I would try to get to 40, 50 people first before you start reaching out to companies. And that's not hard to do. But people have this perception, I have to know these people. No, I out of the 10,500 contacts, I probably only know maybe a couple hundred of those people I'd remember by name if that. You know, I don't know who these people are. Some of these people go, oh, that guy's on your LinkedIn. Editor. Can you introduce me? I'm like, I don't know who he is. I have no idea. That's not how LinkedIn works. It's like uh, LinkedIn is, is weird. It's, it's, it's like you're just you're adding people in your network that you want to connect to. But really, you're not chit-chatting. You're not posting what you ate for dinner or your extreme political views or any of that garbage. Um, you're really on there to do business. And so you want to be really, really professional. And you don't want to post the stuff that people post on Facebook because if they go through your feed and they see, wow, this person's getting weird, he's posting inappropriate stuff or she is, then they might decide not to do business with you. So be careful what you post on LinkedIn because they might take a look at your profile. Um, good to have a nice picture, um, professional um, people ask quite frequently, can I be doing other things? Absolutely. I mean, most of our students like they're in construction. It says that on their profile, but it also says their product developer. It's in the history. It's perfectly fine. So James, if you just want to pick up the phone and do it, great. I think that's fantastic. And then most, the way I'm advising most of our students to do it these days, build up your LinkedIn profile, reach out to all the companies on LinkedIn for the ones that don't get back to you, reach out to them on the phone, but you could do it the other way. I think that would you're not afraid of calling, I would say that would be faster, which I, I love. Um, so LinkedIn's great, but if you could just pick up the phone in your particular industry, like you're getting into 12 of those 15 companies just on the phone, good on you. That's that's great. You know, don't wait. Um, uh, Daniel says, do you offer a course that teaches all the steps without the six-month period? I'm not ready to start my project and don't have time for six months. If someone in, okay, so that was, that was a different, um, yeah, so we, we are going to be changing the program sometime this month to a three month program, and then you can add another three months. So that will be coming Daniel, Daniel, but it doesn't sound like you're there yet. doesn't sound like you want to commit and work on a project yet. You just want to learn about the 10 steps. So um, we do have an academy program that's less expensive, that's group coaching. But if you're not ready to start working on your project and you just want to study a bit, um, then I would get our book, One Simple Idea. So if you just type in One Simple Idea, Stephen Key into uh, Amazon, you will find that book. That is our 10 steps. Now, you don't have a coach guiding you. You don't have somebody saying, oh, for your project, this is the right next thing to do. That's the beautiful thing about a coach. And that's why our students license all the time. I don't see our fans licensing very often, but I see our students licensing all the time because they're holding your hand. So 
if you're just looking to kind of like get familiar with the 10 steps, I would get our book, One Simple Idea, um, and watch us ramble on YouTube, watch a bunch of YouTube videos. But if you want kind of that structure, but you're not ready to sign up for the coaching yet, then I would get One Simple Idea. Um, Daniel had a follow-up question there. If someone infringes on a patent, how much time is allowed to take recourse? Um, that's a very, very legal question, so I'm not going to answer that one. Um, so first off, what I'll just say about infringing, if you do find you believe someone's infringing on your patent, do not reach out to any company or person that company ever without talking to a patent attorney first. If you do and say the wrong things, you can start a chain reaction that they have to start legal proceedings. So accusing a company of um, infringing on your patent is something you need to be very careful about, okay? A lot of times when I see people, that they say that, and then I look at it, and then I'm like, no, like what makes you think they're infringing? Um, so... Um, yeah, I can't answer your question. That's just a little too legal. How much time is allowed for recourse? Um, I have a guess, but I don't. I don't want to answer that one. Um, you don't. You guys never hear me say that, do you? I don't think I've ever said that on a on a on one of these live Q and A's. Um, okay, uh, Derek here. Hi, Andrew. Derek here. What about being a wacky inventor? Is it okay to not know the ends the ins and outs of how it works would my coach help with this before reaching out to companies yeah i mean a coach is basically there to make sure you do and say everything right so that i can guarantee we can't guarantee you're going to license every product you work on but you have a great sell sheet that it's that it's really beautiful easy to understand in six to ten seconds not anemic list of companies not two or three companies but 20 or 30 companies yeah sometimes there's company products where you only have eight or 12, but most, most of the time, a lot of time it's 20 or 30. And we push our students to do that. And that's one of many reasons that our students are successful. Um, talking to you about what could be in the PPA as far as product variations go and things like that, because all our coaches are inventors. So if they're like, oh, well, can you do it like this and this too? And you're like, oh yeah, good. I'm going to include that in my PPA. It's not legal advice, but it's like just inventing advice on what the other variations of the product could be. Um, and then having your back, like Every, anything a company is going to say, they've heard it a million times before. So they know they're like, oh, that's going to happen all the time. Say this or, oh, that's a really weird thing to say. But here's what you're going to say. So it gives you the confidence to kind of go guns blazing forward, knowing they'll have an answer for anything. So that's the big benefit of having a coach. But every meeting, they're giving you something to do. And then the next one, they're looking at it and saying, oh, you need to fix this and this and add this. And you're good. Now, here's your next step. So it's very step-by-step. Step. They're double-checking everything. So you're never going to co come across as a wacky inventor. If you go rogue on your coach and you don't show them what you're going to send or you just say something randomly, but, you know, we'll put you on with your coach or a negotiation coach before you talk to a company. If you get an email, you're going to send it to your coach or a negotiation coach and know what the reply is. So you should never come across as a wacky inventor. Um, you're not going to send a terrible sell sheet. You're not going to be reaching out to dramatically the wrong companies and wasting your time. Um, so we're there with you every step of the way. Um, and that's why our students are successful, to be honest, because even our students, they, they get off on their thinking. But if you're meeting with your coach every week and you're emailing in between, you're only going to be like a half a step off the path before it's like, coach is like, what? No, 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 right here, not there. And, and that is a, 
But when people do it on their own, boy, they come to a lot of conclusions that are just like, whoa. But when a coach can say, for your product, this is right because of this. And sometimes students will say, um, oh, but Stephen Andrews said on a YouTube show, and the coach is like, yes, a YouTube show is not black and white. They didn't know what your product is, but for your product here, and I've talked to students about that too, no, this makes sense for your product. But you said on a YouTube show, I'm like, well, YouTube show is not black and white. And I'm going to say this here too. When I give you these answers, generally they're true in most situations, but I don't know what your product is. If there's a variation or a different direction to go, that's why having a coach is very beneficial because they go, well, but this would make sense for your product because of this. And they can give you examples for your particular product. Then you can do the right thing. And then you start to get a feel for it because real life experiential learning is the best way to learn. And that's what we do. We learn by working on real life projects with us or you guys learn by working on real life projects with us. So anyway, enough of that. Um, let's see. Great question, uh, Derek. Thank you. Uh, Jay, Jay Bell, uh, it's one of those handles. It's longer than that. Let's this Jay Bell, Jay Bell digs dream, dream garden. That's, that's the handle. Anyway, you, she, he or she comes here all the time. So thanks for the question. I just usually say Jay Bell. Uh, let's talk numbers and money. What is the most impressive income a student has earned in the first year of a licensing deal? So what I'm going to say is if you're looking at the first year, you're not thinking about licensing the right way. That's not how licensing works. So licensing is something that happens over time and it's gonna vary dramatically. So let's do some ranges. So you might have a product, let's say it's an infomercial product, those DRTV, as seen on TV guys, you know, things go in that business and come out very quick. You know, it happens, big sales and then they usually taper off pretty quickly. Sometimes those products continue to sell for a long time. So you might be earning like crazy royalties for like two years or something. And then they just start to decline very, very fastly. Where you might have some like farming implement that farmers use and you license it to a company. It's not earning you that much royalty, but there's really not a lot of competition because it's kind of a niche. Let's say it's a niche farming implement. And Nobody really wants to knock it off because they see that this one company you license has got it taken care of. And you could earn royalty for 15 years. Now, because patents are 20 years doesn't mean most products don't sell 20 years. But on some products, sometimes the smaller products or bigger ones, they can sell a really long time. So, so let's say it's an infomercial product. Some of these infomercial guys, they will, um, they will guarantee minimum guarantees of a quarter million dollars. Nobody does that. That's craziness. Don't even think about doing that with other companies, but they will put that down because if they're not doing those numbers, they're gonna kick it back to you. So let, let's say it does a quarter million dollars for three years. Well, that's three quarter of a million dollars over three years, you know, but let's say it does better than that. Let's say it does uh, 400,000 the first year and 600 the next year, another 500 the next year. And so what's, what's that 1.5 million or something like that. Now I don't wanna throw these random numbers at you guys like, cause you could do this little gag novelty gift and maybe it earns you $5,000 over its entire history. Some gag novelty gifts can do very well. But what if it's like um, um, my business partner, Steven, this product called Stuck on You. And it was this one he was doing a lot of novelties. And it was a little suction cup dart. It had a little heart on it. It's stuck on you. And they only plan on selling it for one season. It's a novelty product that sells for one Valentine's Day. And then they want to do something new the next Valentine's Day. Is that going to be earning you big bucks? No, of course it's not. So I think one of the ones that 
we we couldn't publicize this success story, but we had a student, and it was kind of disappointing on our part, but we were extremely happy for him. Um, they licensed the product to a major automotive manufacturer, which is practically unheard of. Licensing the automotive aftermarket is great, but he came to us with eight patents, and we helped him do that deal. At one point, he's really going to muck it up with what he's doing. I really believe he wouldn't have done that deal with our guidance. But he was a really smart guy as well, and he really covered it with a lot of patents. It was craziness. He did that all before he came to us. And and um, Stephen commented me the Duke could like buy his own private island with how much money he made. Now, what really sucked for us on that one, which is pretty rare that this happens, is he told us after the deal was done, oh, look. I signed um, an agreement with this major automotive manufacturer. I'm not even supposed to be talking to you guys. And we're like, uh, you mean you can't talk about your success? Can't talk about your product once it launches? We can't talk about anything? We can't do a success story? He's like, no. And we're like, oh, man. So that really sucked. But but I think that's probably one of the biggest ones because I'm, I'm not going to quote a dollar figure on that. I, I heard what it was crazy, 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 crazy money. Buy your own little tropical island money. Most people aren't earning that kind of money on a licensing deal, though. So it's 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 three factors, really. It's the price of the product. Is it $0.99 cent product? Is it a $500 product? Like, I had this one student licensed this giant boring drill bigger than this. It was the size of a Volkswagen Bug. You know, and that thing isn't $59. I don't, I have no idea what the price was on that. But, you know, it might be a $10,000, $20,000 boring drill, you know? So first thing is, what's the price of the product? Is it 99 cents? Is it $5,000? Is it $50? And then the second way you're going to calculate your royalties is the volume being sold. Well, you take that and you multiply it times your royalty rate, which is what everybody obsesses about. But um, the royalty rate is relevant to the price of the product and how much volume they can sell. So some of these people... They, they go, well, oh, if I sold it myself, I could get a 20% profit margin, Andrew. And I'm like, yeah, you know, you're selling like, how much are you selling now? Well, 3,000 units a year. And then you're, this guy's going to try to license it, this company. And they're saying they can do two, 300,000 units a year. You do the math. And so, yeah, you might be earning, I would say the most common royalty for consumer products is around 5%. But I've seen plenty of times where it's six, seven, 8%. Um, I saw this one uh, student of ours that had a drum-related product that was kind of really niche, and they got the equivalent of it was like a 24% royalty, which is crazy, but it was so low volume. I'm like, good for you. You deserve it because it wasn't going to add up to that much anyway. So it's the price of the product, the volume, number of units being sold, and then your royalty rate, right? So take the price of the product times the royalty rate, and then you multiply that times the um, the volume being sold. So a big part of determining if you want to do a deal with a company is to figure out uh, what kind of volume they can sell and hold them to it in the licensing contract. So, you know, I mean, so for some people, you know, it's, it is the amount of money though you earn over time. Um, Jay Bell was asking, what's the first, most impressive first year income? I don't find in most cases the first year income you know, it takes a while to get up and running. Maybe they get in a few stores and a few more stores and a few more stores. So I would say for the most part, second year incomes are more impressive than first year incomes. But it's a good question, Jay Bell. It could range from a few thousand dollars for some gag novelty gift. You're licensing to some tiny little small mom and pop company to, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. You know, I mean, if you're making 200,000 in royalties and sells for five years, that's a million dollars. But, um, 
you know, there was, uh, what was the, I have it in the other room. I don't have it here. Once I have all the products up on the shelf, um, I don't want to quote a dollar figure on this, but the, the, the cigar glass that one of our students licensed to uh, Corksicle, that's earning a lot of money. I don't want to repeat it. We're not, <coughs> we aren't of a get rich quick variety, but it's in big, big numbers. That one, um, that was impressive when he was telling me how many units he was selling. I don't remember off the top of my head, the dollar amount or the number of units, but it was a crazy number of units are really good. I was surprised actually. I thought it was going to be a little more niche. It was a, a drinking glass or drinking liquor or whatever. And it had a, I have it in the other room. Um, I can go get it. Well, I don't want to go get it because that's just weird standing up. But and it had a, a place to put your cigar um, in the glass. Actually, it was like built in so you can hold the glass like this and cigar. Really cool for guys like smoke cigars and drink, drink alcohol. I don't do either. Um, but uh, so so it, it, it can vary dramatically. Um, but this whole like misperception, you're going to become a millionaire overnight or you're going to get these large upfront fees you're making money as they make money you're not asking for a bunch of upfront money that is the biggest rookie move and the best way to kill a deal people are like well but it's a really big money they can big company they can afford it i'm like don't be stupid oh my god you're going to kill a deal see i've talked to inventors that ask for a quarter million up front i'm like but they're going to make a lot of money and this could be on a product so i'll give you an example i think i did this last time so let's say it's a product you could be earning 100 you think you're going to earn $150,000 a year in royalty. If you ask for 50,000 up front, would be way way too much. You're like, "But Andrew, I could see this easily earning 150,000 in royalties." They more or less told me that they don't want to pay it up front. They haven't made the money yet. It doesn't matter how big they are, the bigger they are, the more conservative they are. They'd much rather pay as you go. So don't think you're going to make a million dollars overnight with one product. Can you make millions of dollars on a product? Yes, you can. Do most of our students make millions of dollars on each individual product? No, I wouldn't say they do, but they can do very, very well. I mean, if you're earning $100,000 a year in royalties and sells for seven years, that's $700,000 and you didn't have to run a business, you know, but hey, you might be earning 40,000 a year in royalties, 20,000 a year in royalties, you know, but when you talk to these companies, you can figure out what their plans are for your product and you absolutely should. And then you can go, am I happy with that? And if you're not greedy, you should probably be happy with it. But sometimes it's like, ooh, this is kind of a red flag. Really? That's all they're going to do there? And you might be like, nah, maybe I'll keep looking around. Um, okay. So uh, well, this was a good question from CEO. CEO? It's not CEO. It's CEO D. Okay, I think. I don't know. Um, is being a multi-genre inventor okay? I really like, saw this one earlier. Is being a multi-genre inventor okay? So that was what he means. Like, okay, you're inventing products in garden and barbecue and kitchen and home storage organization. That's multi-different genres, right? Or I got some automotive products. I got some kitchen products. That's what he's talking about. I can't help it. I'm trying to come up with multiple products for one industry or company is doable, but it isn't as fun um, for my thinking, which, which I agree, just coming up with random ideas. But if you're going to be in it for the long haul, sticking in an industry or maybe two or three max can be very beneficial. So when you reach out to 30 companies for one kitchen gadget and 28 say no, and you ask if you're open to more and they say yes, 
you didn't waste your time. You made 28, actually 30 contacts that showed interest too. So you have their name, you have their email, you got in their kitchen gadget, you just sent it to them. So now you can focus on what you really like to do, which is inventing. So um, CEO, um, if you, you can, and you're saying it's not as much fun, I just want to randomly do ideas here and there and there. You can do that. But if you're, most of being successful when you're licensing is doing the work. It's not about the ideas. I love saying that to shock people. So being like, if you got 30 companies for a kitchen gadget, not being done until you get a no from all of them and still not being done, maybe send it to them all six months later for the ones that said, oh, not this time, not interested. And, you know, you're like, well, they didn't give me a specific reason. Why not? I'll hit them up again. Maybe I'll get a lucky. And two weeks earlier, their boss said we need new products. That is success. You know, so, you know, you might not think it's as fun to come up with ideas in particular industries as opposed to just randomly doing them. But the question you need to ask yourself is, are you working on, on products in 10 different industries? Or are you just thinking and dreaming them? So you're never, you're not really working on your inventions. You're just dreaming them up and putting them, writing them down or keeping them in your head. So that's not really working on inventions. So one of the things that InventRight does is helps people get really focused on actually working on their inventions and not just dreaming them up and thinking about them. So my comment to you, CO, is, and I know I'm pronouncing that right because it's just a handle, but um, is it might not be as much fun, but it is something you should work on doing. But if you're not even working on reaching out to companies with your products anyway, it doesn't really matter because you could come up with 50 ideas in kitchen and 20 in automotive. If you're not actually reaching out, what's the point? But it is something everybody should focus on without a doubt. Sometimes our students, they'll start and they'll go in like two or three different industries and they'll, they'll oh, I really like this one. And I'm okay with this one. You know, I decided I don't like this one, you know? And so it is something I think everybody should focus on. It's a great question. And thank you for your honesty. It's not as much fun. I'd rather just dream up ideas everywhere all over the place. So my answer is you can still do that, but I would still try to focus on products for a particular category like kitchen or automotive or this or that. Because once you start reaching out, you can utilize the context you've already made. Okay. Um, Jeff said, I made several connection requests on LinkedIn with potentials during a trade show that I didn't attend. Um, next week, oh, I love this. Next week, I received many new connections. They have assumed, they assumed I met them on the floor. I love that. That's great, Jeff. So what Jeff is saying is he didn't go to this trade show, but he reached out a couple weeks later and a lot of people accept this connection. Now, they might have anyway, but they might have just gone like, oh, all these people are connecting with me. So they're just going to go accept, 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 accept for everybody that's reaching out after the show because that's the thing you do after a show. So I love that comment, Jeff. And I think it's a great tip. You know, you guys could look when a trade show is and like a week later, two weeks later, you could reach out to your potential license. I wouldn't wait to ever do that anyway, but you could reach out and they might be more likely to accept you. I, I think that's an interesting thought, but I would never wait to reach out to anybody, but it's just a kind of a cool little comment Jeff has there. Um, Will said, I have a product that has similar, has a similar in design and purpose as another product. The use of the design is completely different field. Would the design have to be altered drastically to patent or license it? I have no idea, Will. I mean, 
Probably not, but I can't make a statement as to one way or another. If you have this product and you're going to make some changes to it to use it for a completely different purpose, if there's any patents on the intent, original intended purpose, it's probably not to serve the new purpose. So more than likely, you're not violating any patents whatsoever. I get that question pretty often, but you have to look and check. You know, so if you see if you see ten companies all with this other purpose for a different category and you know like i said earlier if you see 10 companies doing something there's probably no patent on it because they're doing the exact same thing now they might have a patent on a piece of it though so i would look up any patents that are relevant to the product that is different for another industry and then think about what is my change what changes am i making to this product to make it right for the industry i'm going to try to license it to and you'll try to get protection on that OK, because it's almost like another product then, because if it's being used in the center industry, then you make a change to it. You can protect that change for the industry that you're using it in for the purpose you're using it for. So um, and most of the time that's true, but without knowing what exactly what it is, I can't answer for sure. But do your research. So uh, Clyde says, hi, hi, Clyde. Um, uh, Carlos said, can you license different versions of your patented product to different vendors? I have a prov uh, provisional that has different versions within the patent. Absolutely. So, But it's not about the patent again, guys. It's about them stepping on each other's toes, right? And so if you had a different version, let's say uh, if for a different distribution channel. So let's say one was... Um, convenience stores. It's going to be sold at trust stops and gas stations. And then you got another version sold in big box stores. But for some reason, there's no conflict there. So if you're not going to license it to two companies selling in the exact same shelf at Walmart, that doesn't make any sense. You're not giving one a leg up over the other. The question is, is the company going to go, no, I don't want you to sell in convenience stores. It's going to hurt our sales at Walmart. You know, But there's going to be products that are done in a different way or a different version. Maybe it's a super high price version. It's gold. Right. And there and you're going to sell it for a thousand dollars with a version you're licensing to it is five dollars. Right. Are, and you you can bring it up with the company. That's not the first thing you say. You're going to move a licensing deal forward and you go, guys, I want to reserve these rights over here. And they're like, oh, yeah, that doesn't step on our toes. We're fine with that. Right. Or they might say, you know, no, no, no. We, we want that, too. We want that, too. And then it's a negotiation. So you can absolutely license different versions of the products for different distribution channels, different geographies, different purposes, a different version of the product, you know, but licensing it to two companies selling the exact same store, the exact same product, don't think you're going to make more money that way. You're just not going to get a license. It's like greed, people thinking like, well, I license to five companies, I'll make more money. It's like, no, if you license to one big ass company that has incredible distribution, don't be so freaking greedy. Now, if they're missing out somewhere, and you realize, oh, I could do this different version over here and I think they'll be okay with it. Okay, great. Good on you. Go for it. Um, I wouldn't say it's the case most of the time, but I've talked to plenty of our students where I'm like, oh, no, that makes perfect sense. You can break that out. But let's not focus on that now. Let's focus on you licensing the main thing. And then once you get into a license deal, you can try to pull those rights out or specify that you have the rights to do this and this. It can totally be negotiated. It's not something you say on a first call, though. My God, no. Um, so thank you, Carlos, for that. Um, motion said, hi, Andrew, love the color change. Yeah, 
It's good back there, but I got to put all our students' products up there. So uh, you guys got to hold me to having the, having them all up there by Monday, but it's coming Monday. So just give me a week. I'll get it up. I'll probably have it up in a few days, actually. That'll be cool because I can pick students' products off the shelf and talk about them. That's going to rock. Um, <laughs> Joanne said, is it a good idea to go to LegalZoom to help with a licensing agreement, or do you strongly suggest to go to a local patent attorney? Neither. Oh my God, no. All right. Well, come to us. We have a we have a uh, a negotiation coach that knows exactly what to do there. Licensing attorneys, you know, I'm going to say it here, guys, aren't the best people to go to when you got interest from a company. If every time you get a little interest, you go to a licensing attorney, it's going to cost you a ton of money. They're going to kill the deal, and they're still going to send you a bill. Because they like to nitpick deals to death to get more billable hours. Before you know it, your attorney and their attorney are arguing where there didn't need to be an argument. And the deal gets killed. And they're like, guess what? That licensing attorney is going to still send you a bill. Just for one deal for an entire mentorship over six months, you could call one attorney. It would cost you that much. When we help our students, our negotiation coach helps you all the way through the deal, gets you to about 95% done. Deals don't always get that far. And then he says, Look, you just need a licensing attorney for an hour or two to dot the I's and cross the T's. It's everything is good here. All the major deal points are here. So we always tell our students, look, don't sign anything before a licensing attorney reviews it. But that is on a done deal. So our negotiation coach will go through point by point with the contract, go through the back and forth of the company before you get to the contract. So you don't muck it up before you get to the contract and guide you through and all that. We do not charge our students a dime more when they're a member with us to get that help. And it's going to guide you to learn how to get deals to 95% done and then only contact the licensing attorney when a deal is 95% done. You've got agreed on all the major deal points. That's the only time you should be contacting a licensing attorney when it's more or less done because they are not deal makers. They're deal killers. Also, it would be incredibly expensive. It's not unusual for students to reach out 30 companies and you might get interest from two or three or four or five. And to think that they're going to guide you to move the deal along, the stuff you're talking about early on when a company shows interest is not a licensing contract. It's about the product. It's about doing the certain things that make that deal move forward. And no, you shouldn't be contacting a patent attorney either. Most patent attorneys, they might do two or three licensing agreements a year and some they don't at all. They would be a terrible person to reach out to. Don't do that. Even if it's a patent attorney, they do a fair amount of licensing agreements. You don't want that. You want a licensing attorney that does nothing but licensing agreements. Do not have your patent attorney do a licensing agreement for you. Do not have a licensing attorney or a patent attorney negotiate an agreement for you. No, 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 no. Um, have somebody. What The reason why our students do a lot more deals, I'm not, I'm, this isn't a solid statistic, but I'm going to make up the statistic, and I believe this to be true. If every time one of our students got a little bit of interest, instead of sending them over to our negotiation coach, Paul, that's going to guide them on what to say in the next email, what to say in the next phone call. We just said, oh, just go to a licensing attorney. You know, oh, you got interest. Okay. They would kill 85% of the deals that we help our students close. I am not kidding. They don't know how to talk about the product, manufacturing issues, um, just common sense, kind of like keeping it kind and keeping it warm and fuzzy instead of starting this battle between your attorney and theirs. Like you don't even want their attorney involved. They're, they're not going to be involved early on anyway. So sorry for rambling so much on that. Uh, who asked that question? Uh, 
God, I know I forgot who answered that question. Uh, okay, that was Joanne. And I don't know if LegalZoom has licensing attorneys. No, no. I, and I, I don't personally, I'm just going to tell you, I don't recommend LegalZoom for filing your provisional patent either. I think our smart IP solution, if you go to InventRight and you, you click on smart IP, is way better than that. Um, we did it with Pat Attorney Gene Quinn. It's it's a great, great solution. So no, please, guys, don't like get a little interest and go to license attorney. They'll just keep killing deals for you. You're going to work hard and they'll just keep killing them for you. Now, with that said, for them to dot the I's and cross the T's on a final contract, yes, always do that. We always tell our students, look, we got all the major deal points hashed out. We helped you behind the scenes, back and forth, told you what to change, then their and their attorney changed it. You know, that's what we do. So that saves you money. So when our negotiation coach guides a student on what the request should be, then they send it to the marketing manager and their attorney. And then you're you're paying you're not paying for that attorney. They're paying for their attorney to change it. Much better to do it that way. It saves you money. It reduces the friction, increases dramatically the chances of doing a licensing deal. So guys, don't make that mistake. Um, I rambled so much on that one, but hopefully I got the point across. I don't want to, I want to see you guys like work really hard. Uh, maybe some of you aren't students of ours and you're not going to get the coaching. You watch your YouTube show, you work your butt off to get a deal on the table and some licensing attorney kills it for you because they decided to start fighting for you. They, you think, well, they're going to fight for me. You know, the bullshit. That's the wrong attitude. You're trying, you're trying to partner with this company. It's not a fight. It's not. And, and attorneys try to create value by fighting for you. And that's just a bunch of BS. Sometimes it makes sense. Use them at the right point in time. They're fantastic at the right point in time. But when you get a little initial interest, hell no. Um, let me see to do. Okay, so she, uh, we get this question a lot. Says, um, I think Shia from Atlanta, I think you're saying. Uh, once you have completed the licensing agreement, is there any way to track the volume of sales or do you only rely on the company's reporting? So you don't wait until the licensing agreement is done. You put an audit clause in the licensing agreement. So if you really are concerned that it's not accurate, that you can audit them. And usually the way that works is if you're off by, usually what we do is if you're off, if they're off by more than 5%, then they have to pay for the audit. And if, if, um, if they're not off by more than 5%, you have to pay for the audit. It's not something you're going to be doing regularly as auditing. You're saying basically, I don't trust you. Um, talking to salespeople, looking at, especially in the old school way, it's changing a little bit, but if you can see they're in so many Walmarts and Targets or whatever, they're not going to be in those stores for very long if they don't sell at least one unit per week per store. So if they're in 10,000 Walmarts and they're in all of them, let's say, and they're not reporting four units per store, what would that be? 40,000 units, uh, per month, which is what, 120,000 per quarter. I don't know if you did the math there, it doesn't really matter. But then it's like, oh, something's off. Like they got in all those stores and they're sending me this. You know, so talk to salespeople about um, how things are going at the company with that product. Talk to them, hey, I'm the inventor of the product. How's they going? How's that going? How's sales for that product going? And keep track of it, but it's very rare. I cannot think of one of our students that has audited a licensee ever. I did talk to one that said, you know, I did just not paying me the royalties and I did talk to him and he pulled the deal. But that's one out of students 
over 20 years that I am personally aware of. So I think it's pretty rare. I think they're honest for the most part. So, um, and you do want an audit contract in there. You have to have that. We don't let our students do that without putting that in there if it's necessary, but it's not something you're going to be doing often or probably at all. But you want that right to do that if, if, if you're concerned about it, right? Um, uh, motion, totally appreciate the wealth of information you and the team are providing. You're welcome. Um, Deidre, thank you. Andrew, love in all caps, your advice and wisdom. Thank you. Um, uh, let's see. Let's try to get some questions for some people I haven't gotten to. Okay. Uh, Colin said, what is needed if I wanted to license a deal from a Canadian to an American company? I don't know what that means. You want to license from a Canadian or American company. Um, it, it doesn't matter if they're in Canada or if they're in the U.S. or if they're in Europe. It, licensing deal is a licensing deal. Um, I don't know what you mean. If What is needed if I wanted to license a deal from Canadian to an American company? I don't know. So what one of the things that people are concerned about, they're like, well, I am in Germany or I'm in Australia or I'm in Indonesia and they don't care where you live. They just want a good product. So a licensing deal, if you lived in Indonesia and you're Indonesian and wanted to do with the deal with the American company, there's absolutely no difference between that and one of our students that's in California in the United States doing a deal with that same American company. This is no difference. Um, so, um, Mariana, these, these are really great. Thank you for these Q and A's. You're welcome, Mariana. Um, Suarez's channel said, does background in mechanical drawing help in licensing? Thanks. No, I would say the vast majority of our students can barely, well, I can barely draw a stick figure, but can't, are not capable in mechanical drawing. I wouldn't say it's necessary. I don't think most of our students do mechanical drawings um, for the product that they're even licensing. Um, a percentage of them do. They get some CAD drawings done and they get somebody to do it for them if they can't do it. But it's not necessary to do a licensing deal. A 3D virtual prototype is if you don't have a prototype. Sometimes our students will cannibalize. Um, like, let's say if this this is uh, the product is this pen and you had this really unique mechanism here that it clips onto your shirt or let's say it just sticks to your shirt right so you need to know all the inner workings of this pen no you just need to know how this part here that makes it stick to your shirt without a pocket works okay so you you need to have a base understanding of, of how it's going to work but you don't have to have done those drawings yet in order to do a 3d prototype and show it and it looks like it works it looks beautiful and then you're showing it sticking or whatever, or maybe um, you got a video and it's not gonna work exactly like it would work um, on the production model, but you put some sticky here and you just show it and you create this perception that it works, but you know there's a good chance they can make it work. So don't be the crazy inventor where they're like, well, how do you do that? And you're like, I have no idea. <laughs> I just put some glue on here and stuck it in my shirt. Don't do that. But if, if you have a good idea of how it's worked, but you don't have all these little details, it's not like all our students are getting mechanical drawings before they can try to license a product. Hell no. No, 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 no. But um, does it make sense sometimes? Yeah. Is it a skill that you need to learn? I don't think so. I think that doing mechanical drawings to do computer-aided drawings, CAD drawings, 
it takes a, a while. It's something that's hard for people to learn how to do unless you're already a technical person. But I've seen some people go, oh, I spent one year learning SolidWorks or learning some fancy CAD designing program. And in that meantime, they weren't working on their products and they could have just paid somebody to do that CAD drawing if it was necessary and a company showed interest when they were really showing interest in the virtual prototype and the sell sheet and the marketing. So no, I don't think it's necessary to license products at all. And I would say the vast majority of students do not have that skill. Can it be a beneficial skill if you already have that skill? Yes. Am I going to, is it another reason to delay working on your products if you don't have a skill? Hell no, 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 not at all. Um, I'm having a conversation with myself. Kind of. <laughs> it was based on your question. So I have a conversation with you guys. Um, uh, okay. Uh, hi, this is from Pony. Hi, Andrew again. Um, regarding my bath product, does having the molds manufactured and shipping pipeline in place put me in a position for negotiate better position for negotiating a license deal um yes it could but that's insane so um nobody should do that because they think they need to do it for a licensing deal now pony if you've already done that because you were going to venture and sell the product yourself great fantastic you can utilize that but they might want to use a different mold they might be like well, your prices aren't good. We're way bigger than you are. We're going to sell half millions a year. We're going to get a better price than that. So whenever you do get any costing, always tell them, look, but I'm just a little guy. They gave me this price overseas or what have you, but I know you can do much better. And if you're really not certain, don't give them that price at all because they're going to be able to get better pricing than you. Um, but yeah, if you had, but don't ever guys make a mold and get it set up to manufacture if your intention is to license it. But some people I see happen all the time, they really didn't know where they were going with it, or they really did. Pony, maybe you really, you're like, I'm gonna make this and sell it myself. And you're like, oh, damn, these met right guys threw a monkey wrench in there. Maybe I wanna license this now instead. I don't have enough money for this, or I just don't wanna deal with running a business. I wanna spend time with my family, and I got this job, I got this other business. And so, um, you know, if you've already got that set up, could that be advantageous? Yes, it could. But still, at the core, um, you're, what you're selling is the benefit of the product, not the mold and all that. And in that case, you know, you're handing that all over to them if you do have it. Um, in that case, I know I was talking about don't ask for much upfront money. It could make sense for them to pay for that if you've already paid for it. So, um, but God, no, guys, don't think you need to get molds or manufacturing in order to license it. But some people already have done that because they were going to sell it themselves. And great. Yeah, that could be an advantage, Pony. Absolutely. Um, and I'm assuming, I don't know if that's your first name. That'd be interesting if that was your first name. Um, Jason says, uh, let's see. What have you seen happen to the rate of totally new inventions? Question mark. Do you think we'll run out of inventions eventually? Hells no. We're never going to run out of inventions. The, especially the American public has an insatiable appetite for new, 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 better, new, slightly different. That's never going to change. We're never going to run out of new ideas. And here's the problem. That's what the American consumer wants and consumers around the world, quite frankly, but especially American consumers. We always want new, better, different, you know. And that's what companies need to give them because that's what the American consumer wants. But companies aren't always that creative. They don't always move that fast. So when you can show them a new product 
with an improvement or something to something else, or it's a new type of product. Um, they love that. That's fantastic. They need you guys. But, and they, and that's also the reason why sometimes not every product's going to sell for 10 years or 20 years, just get a patent on it. Might sell like crazy for three. It might sell for 15. I don't know, but is there going to, and that's why it's also important when you license something, always be showing the company, the new version, the next iteration, the brand extension to keep, help keep them on top of the game. Look, keep, keep an eye out what else is coming out in the market. Give them the next version so that, yeah, you license this version and it's starting to peter out, but now you license them another one that's going to help them keep on top a slightly improved version of that. And that is the way to keep those royalties going for a long, long time. Keep on top of it. And in that case, sometimes you can get something that's going to stay relevant in the marketplace and continue to get royalties on it for three, five, 10, 15 years or something. It depends on the product. Um, and so keep on top of that. Okay. Um, do, do, do. Uh, let's see this other question. Uh, one step closer. Can we have more than one product? Um, I don't know what you mean there. As far as our coaching program goes, we encourage our students to work on more than one project, but from the get-go, only one. Once you got the initial LinkedIn messages and calls in, then we encourage people to work on multiple. If people come out of the gate working on three, they get overwhelmed. So I think it's definitely something, once you get your experience and your feet wet with one, to work on multiple is the pro thing to do. And um, now yeah, people that you know, just wanna work on one a year, I see other people, they, they put a new one in every month, I see some people like they're working on 15 at a time. That's a lot. You've got to be able to manage things really well that way. Because if you imagine if you have 15 companies in your pipeline and every company had 20 to 30 companies, that's a lot. But I've seen people do it. I'd say more often than not, what I see most commonly is I see people work on two or three at the same time. But I see plenty of former students of ours that will work on five, six, eight, ten at a time. And they're all different processes in the pipeline. They just kind of follow up, follow through. What's great about working on more than one at a time is you don't get obsessed. Like your favorite company for this new product is not getting back to you. You don't get obsessed about it. You just keep following up and following through. And you have enough stuff to keep yourself busy. When you work on just one, you start getting obsessive and, and focusing on like, they didn't get back to me yet. And you're just sitting there. They didn't get back to me yet. You know, that's a waste of your freaking time, you know? So when you're working on a new project or you're following up with more companies, you're following up with that one that came back to you, but you're not upset about it because you got a lot of irons in the fire. So that's a way of dealing with the waiting game. Licensing is a bit of a waiting game, but if you keep yourself, you should never be waiting. Be, you're waiting for some things to happen, but then you're doing other things. That's very much the, the way that we teach people to do it. Um, do can't comment joanne on other companies you asked about that i want to comment publicly about other companies so um uh google daniel says google states statue of limitations on infringement is six years guys this isn't stuff that's really going to affect you um like i said that's a very legal question i'm not going to get into that one um, never had a student have a problem with it in 20 plus years of students in 65 countries. Not the most important thing. Could be important to you though, um, but I'm not gonna really worry about that one. Um, Mimi said, what are the most lucrative high demand industries we could concentrate on? Um, you know, 
I think that when you focus just on the money, I mean, it's it's a it's a totally cliche. So sorry, guys, but if you do what you love, the money will come. So if Mimi, if you just focused on a particular industry, because I said it, but you were totally not into it. Let's say gardening. All right. And you're like, you hate gardening. But well, Andrew said gardening. You're not going to be successful. If you like cooking, you don't have to love cooking, but you like cooking. You like kitchen gadgets and stuff. And you work on some of those. You will be more likely to be successful. So I don't think you should concentrate. And I don't know what you mean by high demand, you lucrative high demand industry. So it's all relative. So for instance, our other co-founder, Stephen Key, he focuses on and has in the past on packaging innovations. So packaging innovations are things that the product goes into. So like a toothpaste tube or a container, his container had a label that spun. And so the, the packaging business can be very lucrative because they're selling bazillions of units, right? It's disposable stuff. And then product goes into that. And it's just you're getting royalties on every pack, package that goes out, right? But because there's so much money involved, they're brutal. They will, they will try to find, and this is not true of almost all other industries, they will try to find a way around you if they, if they can, okay? How to do it a different way. You need to have a wall of patents. You need to invest in a ton of patents. You need to understand the manufacturing very thoroughly, which is not true of most of their products. So if you just want to go for something really lucrative, you go for packaging. Now, I think the chances that you do a deal there and the money you'll need to invest is going to be way higher as far as the money you need to invest and the chances you're going to be able to close a deal within any reasonable period of time is much less. So God, if you're new to it, I would say that's a terrible industry to work in, you know, and it's a terrible industry a really difficult industry to work in anyways. So um, would I recommend somebody go into packaging? No, it's brutal. Um, so yeah, it might be really lucrative, but it's really hard to close deals. And most of our students, you know, they just file a provisional patent. They do a sell sheet, they do a virtual prototype and that's plenty. But with a packaging product, just giving you that example as an industry, um, you need to have lockdown understanding of manufacturing, which you don't for most of their products. You have a lockdown intellectual property patent surrounding that, and you have to figure out so they can't get away around you. You know, because these companies are huge, they're massive. So, um, you know, I I think that it's not just an industry though. It's not like one industry is more lucrative. It's like what's the product? So. If you had, um, Mimi, if you had a 99 cent product, um, you know, I'm not saying you wouldn't want to license that. If, if, if it's a product where they're selling 10 million units a year, you know, it may be fine. You know, maybe it's a disposable product. Maybe they're selling 50 million units a year. I don't know. But um, it's all relative. So um, you could do one product in kitchen, for example, and it doesn't earn that much money, but another product goes like gangbusters. So it's kind of like, what is the product? What's the price point? How much volume could that company sell? So you kind of want to look at what's the potential for this product. And by looking at the products in the space, Mimi, you can see what the potential for the product is. So I don't think you need to be tied to a particular industry um, if you're motivated by money. I, I think the ones that earn you crazy money are the ones that are way harder to do a deal with. So in the time it takes you to do one deal there, if you ever do it all, you could have done five deals in another industry and it would have added up to more money than that. And you have some money coming in. Um, you know, so yeah, I, I'm not going to quote a particular industry because I don't think there is a particular one that's, as you said, lucrative and high demand industries. Now, 
like I love kitchen because there's, there's just an endless list of companies and customers buying kitchen products. But my God, there's so many industries out there, you know. Um, but so if you're if your goal is to make money, don't work on super niche products where there's going to be a low volume being sold. OK, so that's it's like, what's the volume where like if you're just looking around, you're like, whoa, they're like everywhere, you know, and you kind of know. Uh, what kind of volume they're doing, and you know it's high volume. It's it's pretty easy to look at a product and go, is this a niche thing or is this a mass market thing? So mass market is what you're looking for, I think, Mimi. So sorry, I really um, rambled on that one, but hopefully you guys thought it was helpful. Uh, Uh, J Bell said, thanks for the helpful info. Love the sound of 100,000 a year and not running a business. Also, I'm pretty sure S Stephen featured the cigar mug in a video. Um, buying an island sounds great too. Yeah, so, but I'm using those as examples. Most of you aren't, you're, you're not going to be buying an island after licensing one product. Um, and not all products definitely earn $100,000 a year. I mean, let's let's say it's, it's pretty minimal, twenty or thirty thousand dollars a year in royalties. It's like, like, if you're not earning that, it's 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 a pretty niche product, guys. But let's say you're only earning thirty thousand a year in royalties, and which is pretty low. But and it sells for five years. But you cranked out a sell sheet. You filed a seventy-five dollar provisional. You contacted a few companies. Companies showed interest, and it's only earning you thirty thousand a year in royalties. But sells for five years, one hundred fifty k. You moved on to other things. Then you license another one. The next one is doing 50K in royalties and sells for eight years. It's $400,000, you know, or, or, hey, if you're just doing niche, like, you know, novelty products, maybe that one only earns you 5,000 and that one earns you 3,000 and that one earns you 10,000, you know, if it's just super niche, really low volume products. So I really hate to give, give figures and this whole, like, I'm going to become a millionaire, like the first year when I license this product, that's just bullshit, guys. That's just that's just not going to happen nine times out of 10. It doesn't happen for big companies. Why is it going to happen for you? Um, you know, it's just not. Now, with the DRTV guys, if it goes really big, yeah. So, you know, but to me, like, those kind of crash and burn quite often. Like, you, you got to be that one big hit. I see people license the DRTV and it doesn't really go anywhere. They do some tests and it doesn't go anywhere. And so... Um, yeah, we were never about selling get rich quick. You do what you love, the money will come. It's very true with licensing. Um, let's see. I don't know what this is. Uh, love the shows. Thank, thank you. Is it necessary to complete the American Invents Act 1480S form? with the PPA application. It doesn't seem as simple as just the cover sheet. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You know, when people use our smart IP solution, it, it puts out a PDF and it shows you what you're supposed to send to the patent office and how to do it. So um, that's a very specific question. Um, I, yeah. Um, uh, Stefan said, what do you talk about on the first call? So I think what, on a first call, you mean on a first call with a potential licensee that's showing interest? Did I did I go over a full 15 minutes? Wow, Jesus. I went over a full 13 minutes here. Well, I'll understand Stefan's question, then we'll call it a day. <laughs> Usually I end right on the hour. Sorry, guys. I'm sure you're okay with that if you're sticking around. If not, you just took off. Um, 
So uh, what do you talk? What do you talk about on the first call? So on the first call with a company, you want to talk about the product. You want to establish rapport. So you're a real person. So you're not just a name and an email. Like you're a real person. You talk about the product. You listen to what they have to say about the product. You make sure they perceive the product correctly. And and you you ask them what they would do with the product if they were going to take it on. Where do you see this fitting in with your product line? You know, it's one of many things you can ask. Um, but you get on the phone and you would talk with them. The main thing is to establish rapport, you know, and to establish that you're not a wacky inventor, to establish you're just looking for a reasonable royalty per unit. So when they get paid, you get paid. And they're going to ask you, what would that be? And you'll say, well, you know, I need a better idea of what you're going to do with it to give you a royalty rate. Maybe we can address that sometime soon. Um, you know, but I don't have enough information to go on now. So, um, you know, just you're trying to establish rapport for the most part and, and see and brainstorm with them on what, if they like the product, what their concerns are, questions, that sort of thing. So you're not trying to close a deal. Usually there's multiple phone calls and many, many emails before you close a deal. So knowing the best thing I can say without covering everything, Stefan, is knowing you're not trying to close a deal on this call at all. You're just trying to make the connection. And what a lot of people do is they're shy about getting on the phone. They start going back and forth email. It's a big, big, big mistake. You got to get on the phone and just talk with them. They're people like you and me. Okay. So uh, for those of you um, that aren't subscribed to our channel, I spent a whole hour and 15 minutes answering questions. If you could go into the um, subscribe, click on the subscribe button right down below. If you're not subscribed, um, click on the little bell to get notifications when new stuff comes out from us. And um, watch a bunch of our YouTube videos and, and give it a thumbs up. That would be much appreciated. That's the way you can help me out since I helped you guys out for an hour and a half. If you want to learn more about our coaching and mentoring, go to inventright.com and check it out there. We're very good at coaching and mentoring our students. We had... Last week, we had three students licensing deals in a week. That was really cool. Um, I don't know if all those success stories have came out yet, but in three students in a week, that was that rock. That was really good. I really like to see that. Um, so I remind you guys, take care, keep inventing, and we'll catch up with you guys next time. See you guys. Bye.